Welcome to Circuit Break from Macrofab, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and this week, UPC barcodes. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dolman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 404. Circuit Break from Macrofab. This week, we're joined by a very special guest. Paul McEnroe is an award-winning engineer who developed multiple state-of-the-art technologies during his long career, including more than two decades in leadership roles at IBM. McEnroe is best known for his primary role in developing the Universal Product Code, UPC, the barcode used on every product in supermarkets and the retail industry, and the scanners that read them. This year, the barcode celebrates its 50th anniversary, but now Paul is setting the record straight on the real story with his new book, The Barcode, how a team created one of the world's most ubiquitous technologies. So thank you so much, Paul, for joining us on the podcast. How you been? I've been great. I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to talking with you. So you've worked at IBM for 23 years. Can you tell us more about that background? Yeah, sure. I was kind of told bedtime stories about the Old West by my uh, father, uh, my adopted father, uh, whom I lived with my whole life while I was growing up. And he got me excited about the West. So I went to college and got a degree in engineering and went to school back in Ohio, Dayton and Purdue, uh, engineering both. And then I, uh, I wanted to go on to graduate school, but I also wanted to get married and settle down and uh, make some money. So I joined IBM and I had a hard time getting them to give me a job in California because they wanted me to go to work back in New York and everywhere, but everywhere on the East Coast. But anyway, uh, make a long story short, I did get the job in San Jose. I moved there in 1960 and I joined uh, the Los Gatos Laboratory when it was built all the time from 60 to 69 when I started the barcode. But in that nine-year period, 60 to 69, I worked in a advanced systems development division of IBM and a think tank called the Los Gatos Think Tank. And um, it was a great opportunity. Their strategy was look for things in the world that can't be developed to be successful because something is missing in the way of technology and then go solve that technology problem and open up that opportunity uh, for you know that application. So I worked in input-output type devices most all the time. My specialty was uh, scanning with an electron, you know, uh, a cathode ray tube, basically. Did they give you the freedom to go and do research yourself? Like, how did how did that work? No, no, they uh, they basically lined up opportunities. So if companies that needed something would come to IBM and say, hey, we're interested in this, we're interested in that, we're interested in something else, then we might do it. A perfect example of that might be at one point in time, the Rand Corporation came to us and uh, the RAND Corporation had uh, invented a thing called the RAND tablet, which was the first device that you could uh, hold an electronic pen over and draw on a tablet and see the line follow your motion on a TV screen above the tablet. So they wanted a recording system that would be fast enough to keep up with that. So it had to put all of the data bits on the screen like a TV set does, but this was very high-resolution drawing capability. So they came to us and said, can you do that? And we 
actually came up with contact recording solution and a special device for magnetic recording that would repeat that picture and put it on the screen. And I do talk about that in the book. And it's the same technology that IBM later took and uh, made into floppy disks, and they called it Winchester. But the first product that used that technology in IBM was really the uh, control unit in the back room of the supermarket to support the barcode. It's fascinating. Were you involved in the circuit design or the system design? Like, what was your involvement? I was a circuit designer. That was my specialty. And uh, it became more of a specialty at IBM because when I came to IBM, one of the reasons I wanted to go to San Jose was so I could take courses at Stanford. And so as soon as I got to IBM in 1960, I enrolled in the advanced engineering program at Stanford. I actually started out working on a PhD. I switched later on into a degree of engineer with business administration, but I did complete the coursework for a doctorate in engineering. So I was going all the time. I was working those nine years at IBM to Stanford every quarter to take one or two courses, and they were in circuit design primarily. So in your background, you you went from wanting to experience the West to, I'm going to be an engineer. Yeah, well, the background, the the West (laughs) part of it was for, you know, after hours, if there were any. Gotcha. (laughs) But uh, it turns out that there weren't so many because, A, you know, I started to raise a family and I was going to school at Stanford, taking one or two courses and working 60 hours a week at IBM and driving 100 miles a day with no freeway (laughs) from IBM to Stanford three days a week. So I was pretty busy. So I, I didn't really get to use much of the West, but I, I did want to live there having grown up in Ohio. Oh, wow, that's that's quite a commute, even back then. <laughs> yeah, that's a real long drive. Yeah, I mean, if you guys are familiar with the Bayshore Freeway, probably many of your listeners are. When I was commuting, it was about 30, 35 miles or something like that from IBM up there on the Bayshore Freeway, but there was no freeway then. It was a four-lane divided highway, but it had stops lights, believe it or not. It had two red traffic lights. The last one to go was at the famous corner of Evelyn Avenue, which is, you know, that's right where Lockheed and Moffett Field and all that is right in the middle of Silicon Valley. So it was kind of a nightmare driving, that is. Yeah, not to get sidetracked too much real quick. Uh, I'm kind of a big car nut. What car did you drive back then? Well, I've been a car nut my whole life. And uh, I started off with a, I first got out there, I didn't have, I I had $600 to my name and that was it and a degree. And so I paid $50 for a Buick Torpedo. Do you know what those were? A business coupe with a a fast back on it. But then I graduated to a TR3 (laughs) shortly thereafter. And then And I say this in my book, but I didn't tell the story behind it. I was downtown for some reason and saw on the bulletin board of the San Jose Civic Center that somebody had a Porsche Super 90 Coupe 356 for sale at at the sheriff's sale. So I just wandered over to it. And I saw it there, and it was all locked up. You couldn't get in. It had no key, but it looked okay. It was just dirty, and tires were half flat. It had been confiscated from some, I don't know, whether a crime or whatever, but the sheriff was selling it. And I got it for, I think it was $350, and had it towed to a mechanic, and he couldn't find anything wrong with it. So I was driving a Porsche Super 90. And... uh, 
Then I traded it on a Jag XK150S Roadster, if you know what those are. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I autocrossed that on the weekends at Laguna Seca and the other courses out there. Yeah, you had, you had a thing for small roadsters then. Yeah. Well, besides the Buick Torpedo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that was just 50 bucks for transportation, yeah. I can't imagine buying a, I mean, you know, today trying to buy a car for 50 bucks that you're going to commute to work in. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a stick shift. See, nobody wanted it, you know, and uh, that was the only reason I did buy it because I didn't like Dynaflow, but, you know, <laughs> this one had a stick in it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, back in uh, your school days, what, what made you choose electrical engineering? Well, that's an interesting question, too. I was thinking about law and business and sales. Everybody told me I should be a salesman. So, by the way, I took uh, tests in school, and they said, oh, you have the most optimization of, uh, for aptitude of being a mortician. <laughs> and uh, I didn't like the mortician idea very much, uh, but I did go to the local companies. You know, Dayton, Ohio, where I grew up, was a big General Motors company, you know, that's where the starter was invented and so on and so forth. And National Cash Register is there and Frigidaire, so on and so forth. So I went and talked to quite a few successful engineers who have worked their way up, but most of them into management. And I told them my story and so on and so forth. And I, I had done pretty well in uh, high school. I, it was nothing special in grade school, but I aced my high school. And uh, they kind of said, hey, don't go into business if you want to be a salesman and go into business and work with people and so on and so forth. Go get a degree for which somebody will hire you to do some work, real work, and then go learn to become a manager after you get into that world. And so that's kind of the path I followed. So I went and took engineering. And after I got my bachelor's degree, I thought, okay, now I'll go get an MBA. But I got opportunities to go to, I applied to four schools, Stanford, Caltech, Illinois, and Purdue. I picked too close to home because my father was very ill and I didn't know if I would be able to leave him and I didn't have any money to travel back and forth from the West Coast. So anyway, I picked Stanford, but uh, then my father got really sick, and then I called Stanford. They let me off and told me to come back for my PhD, but get my master's at Purdue. So that's what I did. I went to Purdue and got a master's, and then uh, my father by that time had to be put in a home, and so I uh, went on to California and. Uh, I enrolled at Stanford, and uh, I was a slow learner at Stanford. It took me 12 years to, to get a degree. <laughs> so, uh, but, I, of course, I was working full-time at IBM the whole time. So, so I, I didn't really start out to be an electrical engineer. I started off to become a, a manager. Yeah, so what, what year did you actually start at IBM? 1960. And how did that change over the years you were there, how did that change from, how did IBM change? Because you said you started as, and like, kind of like the Skunk Works kind of set up. Well, but, but it was a beautiful Skunk Works. I mean, you can't believe. I, I walked into uh, this building that was going to become my office at IBM. And uh, I mean, it was more like a super facility with uh, all kinds of gardens and advanced architecture, modern architecture, two engineers to an office, uh, laboratories right across the hall that were well-equipped. It was a gorgeous facility. 
I ended up, after I got into the barcode thing, going into a skunk works type of facility for intentional purposes. I didn't want this other attitude. But when I first got there, it was gorgeous. And then uh, four years later, what they did is they bought 150 acres in the mountains and they built a beautiful Redwood facility where everybody's office had windows and you looked out over a golf course and you had 150 acres for just 150 engineers. And it was fantastic. So IBM uh, did change somewhat. But the way it changed for me was I was just working on different projects. You know, a project might last a year or two. We did a lot of interesting things. We put stripes on credit cards and tested them out with uh, marketing people. The marketing people at the company we were testing them with, Lloyd's of London, said nobody will ever carry credit cards, so they killed the project, uh, <laughs> and so on. That was like 63. And uh, I worked on these different projects. And then one day, a senior executive of the company walked in my office and uh, I had known him from before. And he said, hey, Paul, we'd like you to be the engineer to lead us as development manager in a new field. And you are going to work with somebody else and go pick out what field that's going to be. And so I found out that what had happened was Frank Carey, who was the president CEO of IBM at the time, and IBM was on a terrific growth curve at that time, and their portfolio was worth more money than any other company in the world. And they had 400,000 employees or so, maybe not quite that many yet, but it got to be 450. And he was worried that they couldn't contain the growth curve just with the business they were doing, which was primarily backroom computers, mainframes. And so he called his staff in and said, why don't you guys go to Silicon Valley and buy a bunch of companies or, you know, four or five different companies and see if any of them work out and so on. And they said, Frank, you can't do that because you got the IBM culture. You've got, you know, everybody wearing white shirts with red ties and blue suits and black wingtips. And uh, you don't have stock programs that are going to entice these guys. And the next morning, they're all going to quit after you buy the company. And the patents you'll be left with will be worthless because it's all about the people. So he said, okay, well, then in that case, just do the next best thing. Go find somebody in IBM to get us started in some new businesses. Now, he didn't really want a total new business. He wanted to start in the periphery of computing and get a business that would create more data and increase the need for backroom computing, but also open up new applications. So they invited me to be the engineering guy to do that. And within a couple of weeks, the guy that I was going to work with, who was going to be the marketing guy and the head guy, resigned from IBM. And uh, then I got that job. So then I became the engineering manager as well as the overall manager. And I looked around and I had come from Dayton, Ohio, and uh, I knew about National Cash Register and how they had had a monopoly in the point of sale business. You know, you had a cash register, a great big old cast iron thing that weighed, you know, a lot and wasn't very easily modifiable. And I thought, gee, we can beat that. And I had been a scanning person. That was my specialty. And I figured, you know, we can come up with some kind of a code that we can scan and do automatic checkout and uh, automatic inventory control and uh, really be great for the supermarket industry. And so I put a proposal in front of IBM to do that. They accepted the proposal. Uh, it wasn't a lot of money. I asked for $300,000 the first year, a million the second, and three million the third. And uh, they bought it hook, line, and sinker, and uh, I got started down that path. So that, that's kind of how IBM changed for me. 
So how did the design come about? Was it just an idea that came to you or was this a committee thing or how did it all no, spawn? No. So so we looked at what was available and uh, all the things that were done before and so on and so forth. And I had worked on scanning similar things. For example, I did a project for the post office on reading zip codes. So I was familiar with that kind of thing. And we were looking at different technologies. There had been a code out there that had been tried in supermarket more than a decade before, back it was a first invented in 1948 by a guy named Joe Woodland, who later joined my team. But he didn't join it from a point of view of working on a code. He joined it as a marketing sales guy. But he had come up with a code that was a bullseye code. Well, a bullseye code is very easy to scan omnidirectionally because, you know, no matter how you twirl a code around, it's always the same. So if a line goes through it, scanning it, as long as the line goes through the middle of it, you're going to get the same read no matter whether it's at 10 degrees, 15 degrees, or 100 degrees. But it took up a lot of space and uh, it was very unreliable and had a tremendous number of errors. And the reason for all this is the way they measured the black lines and the white bars, which were arcs of a circle at that time, was to measure the width of a bar and then compare it to the width of the space next to it. Well, before you get manufacturers printing all the labels, which is where we are now, but that took almost the best part of a decade to get to that, in the meantime, you couldn't live with an error rate that was going to be like what you would have with that code. And also, to even get that error rate, you had to have the bars so big that the thing was too large. So they were measuring the width of a bar, of a, of a line or an arc, and comparing it to the width of the space. But you had to print it for these first 10 years in the store with very cheap printers. And uh, they either had too much ink or not enough ink, and there were other problems with it too, like a motion of the paper going through would cause smear on the edges of the lines. But to go back to the first problem, you compare the width of the bar to the width of the space, if you divide the width of the bar by the space, that's how it worked. Well, if you got too much ink, then the bars, the black bars, all get extra wide and the spaces become extra narrow and the errors combine and uh, multiply and you get this disaster. So what we came up with, and this was one of our first interesting little things, was forget the circles, we'll just make straight lines and we'll solve that by an intricate scanning scheme, which we came up with. I can describe it later if you want, but I don't want to story this story. So we were looking at just bars and we said the same information is contained if you just measure where does the left edge of a bar start and then the left edge of the next bar and the trailing edge of the first bar to the trailing edge of the next bar. And that's the same information, but if you compare it, if the bars are getting fatter because of too much ink, both left edges of the bars move in the same direction, the same amount, almost, and uh, the spaces similarly, and so the errors cancel. And so the error rate gets to be not only okay, it gets to be fantastically good. And uh, I did hire people that were very good at error detection, error correction, all that kind of stuff. So we put all that into the code. And then we scanned it with an X scan so that one line of the X would go through all of the code as long as the bars of the code were higher than they were wide. And... Uh, Actually, if you look at a code now that has, uh, you know, the standard code with uh, sets of numbers, five numbers or six under the left side and five under the right side, 
you'll see that it actually is not higher than it is wide. Because in the meantime, we came up with a solution for that problem. We cut the code in half. So we put a few bars in the middle that would uh, delineate where the center was. We put different encoding, which you can tell if you scrutinize, uh, you look at, the, at a number on the left and the right, find uh, two of the numbers the same, and you'll see the bars above them are different. So we encode the left half differently than the right half, and then the scanner with the uh, intelligence that it has can tell whether it's scanning a left half or a right half and put them together. And the reason that works is that the left half is higher than the left half is wide. And the right half is higher than the right half is wide. So therefore, an X, so it's basically a lizard shoe pattern created by two rotating mirrors, oscillating mirrors. And um, it's the center part of the sine wave crossing over to cosine wave, which drives the magnetics that drive the electron beam. Uh, well, in this case, it isn't. It's just a, it's a laser beam. So, it, you know, that way we bounce the beam off these two mirrors and uh, you get omnidirectionality. So even though the code is just, uh, you know, a linear vertical code, the scan is at 45 degrees from left top to bottom right and uh, vice versa the other direction. So all that made it work, whereas the circular code wouldn't have. You could make it work, but you couldn't make it uh, reliable and operational in an environment of uh, getting a job done. Yeah, so getting this all to work well in the lab would be is one thing, but th how much was like the field testing? Like, did y'all just like go to your local grocery store and set up there or? <laughs> well, no, the first thing we did, but the first thing we did is we built a scanner in a check stand that we made ourselves in the laboratory. And my kids would come down on the weekends and, you know, throw items across it. In fact, the division president changed pretty early in the game. And so my new division president came down and he was, his name was Bob Evans. Some people might know him if they know the history. He was one of the most famous engineers in the world at the time. But he was a great big heavyset, tough guy, jungle fighter type of character, but very competent. And he came down and we took him to that laboratory and we showed him. We had, a you know, an artificial check stand made there and uh, we had this scanner down in the bottom of it and you know it wasn't working yet and we told him that we had to pull items across it at uh, 100 inches a second which was the specification required and it could be spinning and it could be as high as six inches off the surface so you had to have depth of field of six inches and you still had to read the code we told him other problems about it too and he said you know it's the most preposterous idea i've ever heard but you guys have a good reputation and I'm gonna leave and I'm not gonna come back for a year because if I do, I know I'll kill this project. So he said, you've got your money from the CEO and I'm gonna leave you alone for one year and one year to the day I'm coming back and uh, this blankety blank thing better work or McEnroe, your desk is gonna be in a parking lot. Okay, so he left. One year to the day, to the very day, he comes back. And we took him down and we got it working. And, you know, he grabbed a pack of cigarettes that we had put one of these little stick-on labels on and he threw it across the scanner and it worked. And then he got down on his knees and opened up the bench below it to make sure we didn't have some small engineer in there keying stuff <laughs> in uh, that knew what he was sending across. Seeing the barcode really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, you know, uh, that was the end. He said, okay. And that story's in the book too. So 
yes, that was uh, what we built in the lab. And then as we got further along, we signed up with different companies, international and national companies. The one uh, I might mention is uh, Steinberg's uh, supermarkets in Canada. And we set one up in uh, Montreal. And we went up there and installed it in all the, in, in that store and put printers in the back room to print all the labels and so on and so forth. And uh, they operated it for months. And as a matter of fact, one day I was up there and uh, the office of the uh, government uh, in Canada, uh, the headquarters office, uh, they had a gentleman out there trying to decide what did the government want to say about this? Because at that time, we were beginning to run into problems with people were saying, well, wait, they're going to take the price off the items. Nobody's going to like that. You can't see the price on the item anymore. And everybody was worried about that and so on. So this guy stopped a little old lady who was on her way out, out of the supermarket uh, with her basket full of uh, purchased goods. And he asked the lady, he said, you know, are you upset that there's no prices on the items in this store? It's just on the shelf. And she says, oh, no, I love it. Uh, it's much better this way. And he said, why? Why would it be better? And she said, well, look here. And she pulled out of her purse her check slip. And uh, the check slip, you know, was about two and a half feet long. And it had the names of all the items and the price she had paid for it. You know, it said like Wheaties, medium size, you know, and 37 cents. And she said, before, I just got a slip that just had all the numbers on it. It didn't have any names on it. You couldn't tell what you paid for what, you know. I mean, the person before just picked the item up, and if they saw 13 cents stamped on the side of the can, they keyed in 13 cents. They didn't know whether it was Campbell's soup or cereal or what. And uh, she said, now I take this slip down to the store around the corner, and I can go in there and I can see how much I paid and how much the product costs there. And for the first time, I can price check. And it's great. And, you know, we never heard another problem from the Canadian government. But we did have a lot of problems from the U.S. government. It took a couple of years to solve all the issues with unions that were worried about losing checkers and people that were worried about the price coming off and other people worried about uh, losing their eyesight because of the laser and so on. So you mentioned earlier that you had to have a computer in the back, a uh, mainframe. Right. So can we explain more how, because nowadays you're, you, they just have a computer up at the checkout station and not a lot of people, at least at least listen to this podcast, will know how like an old mainframe would work where you have like a terminal system and that kind of stuff. So I'd like to dive more into that too, is how does the scanner interact with the mainframe? Yeah. So to be precise about it, it was a control unit. So a control unit we called different from a computer in that it was specialized to a general, to a specific application rather than to a general one. So a mainframe in the old days, you know, like you said, you had a manager's terminal next to it or you had a keyboard attached to it and uh, maybe a display station in the early days. They didn't even have those, but then the, later they got a display station. And you had a printer there you could print stuff out on. And so you could key in commands and uh, you could you print stuff out. So what we had to have in the back room, if you think about it, look at the store. And it, let's take the biggest possible stores. They were cash and carry outfits in Europe. They had 40 check stands in the front. Our typical supermarkets averaged about 10. But they, these had 40. They were like Costco kind of stores. And so in the back room, you would have to have the device that would store all of the 
data that you needed because the item number that's on the code just says, okay, it's uh, post serial and it's this size and it costs this much money. So that's what you would look up, but you had to have a place to look it up. So you got to have a file system that has all the numbers on it and all the data in it. And if you want to print out something special at the check stand, uh, like there's a special on that or call back and we'll sell you more of these or something, then you put that there. And, you know, you've got 10, 20, 30,000 items in the supermarket. And so if you've got 40 people at the same time asking for the same information and you have to go to from the front of the store to the back of the store, get the information, modify it. If you have gotten to the right point in your inventory, you may need to make an order for more of it. And you don't know whether that's happening or not. So it's a big demand on the file system. In fact, there was such a big demand on the file system, there was no file system available in IBM. I think that means in the world that would do that job well. So that's why we, as I mentioned earlier in my remarks, we came up with a a file that had both fixed and movable heads on it. And on the fixed heads, we had really quick response of quick data. And on the movable heads, we had long-term data Uh, sales data, ordering data, price deals, all of that. And we had application programs that you could write and put in there, or you could write them on your mainframe and send them to that device. So we had to come up with a new file system, and then we had to have a control for that file system, and we called that the control unit. So that was what I referred to, I said mainframe. It really wasn't a mainframe, because a mainframe would have general purpose applications that you could put on there, and so on and so forth, and it didn't do that. But this control unit would then communicate to the mainframes that would be elsewhere in the company. They would be, it would be over telecommunications uh, networks uh, to what at the time was a front-end processor because mainframes in those days <laughs> didn't talk directly to phone lines. So you had to have a front-end processor and uh, you talked over programs that your people might remember like NICF and NCP and so on. Those were the network control programs that existed at the time. So they would be at the corporate headquarters of the grocery store and they would be at the warehouses. And so when a person scanned an item and that got the item inventory in that store down to the point where they wanted to reorder, it would automatically go ahead and reorder. Nobody even had to know anything about it. It would send a a reorder item out. So it had complete automatic inventory control. And, uh, you know, you could do your payroll out of that as well and stuff like that. So we had all the specialty programs for operating a supermarket running in this control unit in the back room. And by the way, the communications demand to get from the check stand to the back room to this control unit were phenomenal, too. And they had to work over plain telephone lines because most stores at that time had a telephone line going from the back store to each check stand. And they didn't want to have to redo the whole communication system just because they wanted to put scanning in. So we came up with a hub go-ahead type of system, which we called store loop. It was a loop that ran around from one check stand to the next. And we put a signal out on that, like a, you know, a train going around. And then uh, everybody would grab onto the car that they wanted, which had the information in it. It's like a token ring, isn't it? And uh, I took that system some years later 
and upgraded the speed of it, and it became the token ring. And it became an international standard and was competing with Ethernet about equally for more than a decade, two or three decades. So, yeah, so we did have very special computer in the back room that we called a control unit. We had special communications to attach to it. We had to build a special file system for it. And uh, if you look at the front of the store, I put the first integrated circuits used in IBM in that store control, in the, in the uh, check stand. It simply had the control capability to manage the different items at the check stand, the printer, the scanner, the keyboard, the display, and so on. And uh, if you look at it, I mean, there it is. It's got a little keyboard. It's got a little display. It had a printer attached, and it was, we put some ROM in it, read-only memory, that we, you know, because the customer wanted to be able to do some uh, programming, but they wanted all their stores to be the same. But a different customer, like Kroger, would want 1,500 terminals this way, and they all had to be exactly the same, or 1,500 stores, I meant, times 10, you know, 15,000 terminals, and then uh, Kroger would have a, a different one. So we would do that programming and put it in there and uh, we could change it for them, but they were ensured they would all be the same uh, in all their stores, which is what they wanted. But that looked like a little PC. It was programmable. It had a little working memory in it and uh, it had a chip in it. And uh, as I said, the first, the circuit density, you'll love this. I had to send my engineers off to learn how to design custom logic. It was custom designed and laid out, and uh, you want to guess how many circuits we had on a chip? 300 was the average, not 300 million, <laughs> 300. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that was a lot better than individual transistors, which was the alternative at the time. Yeah. So uh, it did get our costs down, and uh, in a way, it was uh, a precursor to the PC, which was to come upon, you know, quite a bit later in the decade. So it works by, you have Galvos in there, which are, are mirrors that are spinning the bounce laser. So how do you actually reading the barcode? So we, uh, we have a laser that has a small spot. We put a lens on it and columnate the light even more. Of course, it's columnated all by itself coming out of a laser. Then uh, we shine it on a mirror, a mirror surface. The surface is just like about one inch by three inches. And uh, the mirror oscillated back and forth. So that sends a line. And the mirror is cocked at 45 degrees. So it changes the direction of the beam from going horizontal to going vertical. And, uh, you know, it, it, if the mirror is at 45 degrees, the angle of the light's going to bounce 90 degrees, right? And so then it goes up. And then we have another one up at the top that uh, is orthogonal to that. And uh, it's a little bigger. And it's at a, another frequency is about the same. And that sends the beam that was operated in a line the other direction. Okay, so now you've got this basically a lizard pattern of a sine wave and a cosine wave bouncing off of each other. And that comes shooting out of the window that we have in the bottom of the check, in the top of the check stand, but the, it comes from the bottom. So we blow up the uh, lizard view pattern so that only the linear part of where the cosine and sine curves cross 
comes out of the screen. The rest of it is just lost off the edges of the of the window. And so you got an X pattern. And so, like I said, if the bars are higher than they are wide, which they are because of the thing I told you about before, then one of those scans will go through all of the bars. So the light comes across either straight or at an angle of 45 degrees or less across the bar. So the light reflects off the white back down into the window. And down there we have, in the old days, uh, when we first did it, photomultiplier tubes, <laughs> you know, a vacuum tube. And they pick up the light. Of course, when it's on the black, a lot less light comes out. So you have a signal that you can work with. And uh, that's the way it works. Back with these first units, where were you sourcing lasers for this? Yeah, uh, so, you know, IBM had been very uh, dominant in uh, coming up with lasers and laser technology early on, but we didn't want to go into the business of doing that. So we bought them commercially from a company, a buddy of mine, Don Reichel was his name, was uh, the president of the company. He had been my roommate back in Los Gatos years before, and... Uh, Spectrophysics, Spectrophysics, that was the name of it. I, I'm pretty sure that was the company. Maybe it became Spectrophysics later. But anyway, they, they manufactured uh, half milliwatt lasers. And by the way, I, I mentioned to the IBM lawyers, I was putting a laser in the product. And they said, no, you're not. You're not going to put any laser in any product you put out in front of the general public. you got to be out of your mind. IBM is sued every Friday by lots and lots of people. And, you know, everybody will be suing us. We'll have laser suicide was a term they used, meaning that people will have looked at the sun and messed up their eyes, and then they'll claim that it happened uh, by looking in the check stand and so on and so forth. So By buying some Wheaties. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so basically what I had to do was I had to find who was the number one laser safety expert in the whole world. And I found a guy that I thought was that guy, and he was at Stanford Research Institute in Palo Alto. I went out to him, and I had to contract with him to do original laser light safety research on the accumulated effect over a long period of time of laser light. Even though, of course, we had all kinds, we, we had three levels of degrees of protection so that the laser light wouldn't come out except when it was scanning a product. And of course, the product usually blocks it and you just got your hand down there. You're not supposed to be looking down there anyway. But nevertheless, I had to be sure. And there was data that said that for that size laser, it was a half milliwatt helium neon. That is only class one laser. That wasn't enough light to cause uh, a problem in the eye uh, if you just looked at it. But what about if you looked at it for 10 years, if you were a check stand operator and you did this all the time? So he had to prove that that would not be a problem. And so he told me in order to do that, he had to have a bunch of rhesus monkeys. The rhesus monkeys are a kind of monkey that have an eye that's almost identical to the human eye. So I had to purchase a bunch of rhesus monkeys from Africa and send them to Palo Alto. And uh, he used them to conduct the test and prove that And none of the monkeys, uh, their eyes were never damaged in any way. And uh, that was the first original work done on the accumulation of laser light and the safety of the human eye. And so we got that blessed finally, even by the IBM lawyers. So the barcode, when did you realize that this was going to be something that was going to be adopted worldwide? Or was that something that just didn't come to mind and it just happened? 
Well, yeah, no, it did. Uh, I think we realized it uh, four years into the project. And by the way, a lot of people, there, there's all kinds of, not all kinds of stuff, but there's there, there have been some things on the internet that were said, uh, I read in one project, uh, in one uh, write-up that I saw on the internet, that IBM just, uh, you know, went to uh, the committee that was doing the work, the ad hoc committee of the Supermarket Institute that was selecting the barcode for international standards, standardization that we just uh, started working on this thing uh, two weeks before. I don't know where they got that data. We have worked on it. That was uh, April of 1973, and I had started working on it in uh, early 1969. And uh, as a matter of fact, I published a paper on the pros and cons of the code and different codes and so on and so forth and presented it to the National Retail Merchants Association in October of uh, 71. And uh, maybe it was 72. No, I, I forgot now whether it was 71 or 72, but whatever, way before uh, it was ever even selected. So it's not true that we only worked on it two weeks before. It was a, a long time. So in... Uh, April of 1973, the Supermarket Institute was finished with their selection. And so we had proposed earlier than that this particular code, and other companies proposed their codes. And there's a long story behind it, but they did select our code. And, well, I guess I have to tell you that story, too. So we had submitted a code and done all this work on it. And the Supermarket Institute wisely has hired an external company to help them uh, pick which code was the best. I think there were 14 codes submitted. Seven of them made finalists, and one of them was ours. And McKinsey came out of the meeting where they were making the decision, and he talked to me, not McKinsey himself, but one of their guys. He was a great guy. They did a good job, McKinsey did. And uh, so he came out and he said to me, hey, Paul, he said, uh, I'm sorry to tell you this, but the committee is thinking they cannot select the IBM code. IBM is the, you know, almost the biggest company in the world in this way and that way and other ways, and they'll just be frowned upon by everybody and they'll come under too much criticism for bowing to Big Blue, which is what IBM was known of as the time. And uh, so I don't think they're going to, even though it's clear your code is the best code, it's the most reliable code, it's the really effective code, but I don't think they're going to be able to pick it. And so I thought, gee, here goes three, I'll actually, by that time I had four years into it, all, all that work's going to go down the tubes. But then I had remembered that one of my guys, George Lauer, had come up to me and told me that uh, he had a couple of ideas that would slightly, very slightly improve the code. But it was already past the time where you were allowed to make modifications to your submission. So I said, okay, we'll talk to everybody about that later. We can't change the submission. So now I said to this guy from McKinsey, I said, I tell you what, I have a couple of ideas from my staff and uh, I'm going to give them to you, and I'm going to tell you that IBM will not claim any rights to these. You can have them, and you can add them to the code, and then the code will be different, and it'll be your code, not our code. And you can say you rejected all of the codes and picked your own code. And he said, well, uh, that's far-fetched, but I'll go try it. And he came back uh, sometime later and said, guess what? They bought that. And so if you, if you get my book uh, on one of the pages in the book, I put a picture in there of an uh, article in uh, Business Week magazine, 
April of 1973, and it shows a picture of all the codes, and it shows our code, and it shows the one they selected, and you can see that they're very, very difficult to tell the difference between. All we did was uh, chop two of the lines off at the edges of the code. It didn't even change the algorithm or the methodology or the readability of the code by our own fixed scanning system. We couldn't even tell the difference. So they picked our code, but they were able to say they didn't pick IBM's code. And of course, they had decided that everybody had to put the code that they submitted into the public domain because they didn't want to make anybody the richest person in the world. So all these codes were in the public domain. Nobody ever got rich off the barcode. And, um, of course, IBM had a big advantage when they picked our code. I already had been reading the code for quite some time. And uh, while we weren't the first out there, because we have all these product test rules that the government had put upon IBM for you know, monopolistic worries. So we had to test it uh, more so than everybody else. So NCR actually took our technology and our instructions and hit the market about a, a, a few weeks before we did. But uh, in any event, that's what happened. And uh, so our code, uh, we already had a whole system built around it. And as I've kind of told you, you've probably figured it out that the building of the system around it was as significant as the code itself because that's one of the reasons it had never worked before. It never had a system. It didn't have a good enough light source. It didn't have good enough communication system. It didn't have good enough file storage system and all of that. So by the time they picked it, which was April of 73, that's when we knew it was going to really hit because it was an international standard. And at that point, we visualized, I think, that it was going to go a long way unless it failed. It could have failed in the first couple of years of trials. But uh, at least at that point, April 73, four years after we started, we could see that it was going to go big. So I have, I have a, this is more of a personal question, I guess, Paul, is when, when you're at like the grocery store and then you know how sometimes the scanner stops working, what goes through your mind? <laughs> Actually, you know, I've never been there where the scanner stopped working, but... Uh, oh, so the scanner's I, I, just I no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it didn't even our scanner. I don't, I don't, I, you know, I, I can't tell anymore whose who's scanner it is. You see it all buried down there inside the check stand. You know, and, and I'm the shopper in the family. At 86, you know, my wife sends me in to do all the shopping. And uh, I, I go to an Albertson store. It's uh, just a few miles from my ranch house here. And uh, I'm very good friends with all the checkers there and uh, the store manager. We have a, a great deal of fun. One of my personal uh, patents, which we were allowed to patent equipment, is I have the personal patent on the uh, pistol grip scanner, the remote scanner that you use to point at items in the in the cart uh, that are too heavy to pick up and put on the thing and you know that uh, stores like Costco and them use all the time so they, they all give me a kick out this is your scanner Paul she says when she holds it up and scans and it better work or I'm throwing <laughs> it at you or something you know and uh, so I really do get a kick out of that and uh, we have a lot of fun and uh, at first, they didn't believe me, you know. <laughs> I, I, uh, I shopped there a long time before I said anything, but then, you know, somebody shot me with the thing once. I said, yeah, you know, I actually did that some years ago. 
50 years ago. So uh, <laughs> it, it, it is a lot of fun. But um, they're always teasing me about, you know, I, I haven't seen a whole scanner quit, but I have seen them point at the thing in the cart and uh, not get a result. And then, uh, you know, they say, it's my fault. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I have one more question. So what, what do you think about the move to like 2D barcodes? like the QR code, data matrix, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. I think it's great, and um, I'm all in favor of it. I, I, um, I use QR codes, and uh, uh, they're much more effective. So if you think about the barcode, you know, basically the requirement that we were faced with was 10 digits. Uh, they use five on the left for identifying the manufacturer, and, of course, that gives you 100,000 manufacturers, right? Nine, 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 nine. And then on the right, you got another five, and that gives you 100,000 items. Now, they've, we've allowed for modifications, and uh, we set up companies uh, originally, the Uniform Product Code Council back in the, on the East Coast uh, passed out the numbers and managed the codes, and now you've got GS1, GS2, so on and so forth. But now that applications are developing, there's a need for a lot more data then you can put on a, a uh, an optical barcode. Now, back at the ranch uh, 50 years ago, the retail people wanted 36 alphanumeric characters. And we did that by providing a magnetic version of the code. It's exactly the same code. It uses the same algorithm. All you have to do is put a different head, a magnetic head, on the scanner instead of an optical head, and you get it. And that, that book that I described just goes into all of that. But now, we're not talking about 36 alphanumeric characters, we're talking about thousands of characters, and so on. And so if you just think of the barcode, we're using a linear situation left to right or right to left, but if you just cut that the other direction, you can do up and down too, rather than just left and right, and you can use an area which is your 2D thing. And so they've just modified the system that we had to incorporate what new technology gives them to operate much more efficiently with by scanning up and down and left to right. And so you got a two-dimensional set of reading and you can get an immense amount more data. I don't think it's a challenge to the barcode because the barcode is so simple, so easy, so cheap, and can be printed with such inexpensive printers and read with such inexpensive readers that for the billions of codes that are going to be done a day, we're told 10, 10 billion now, all around the world, in India and China and South Africa and all that, all of that is going to stay, I think, for quite some time, the barcode, because there's a tremendous number of applications that only need the five or six uh, well, say 10 or 12 total digits, but want uh, size and ease of reading and all of that. But yet there's a lot of other applications, like if you buy a product these days and, you you know, instead of sending you a whole bunch of information that they got printed out, they can put a QR code on there, you scan it, and all the information comes up on your computer, and you can read that. That's a lot easier and more effective. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great thing, and it's a, it's a nice expansion of the, of the code that we used. Uh, I'm just saying that colloquially. I'm not saying it's exact copy of it or anything, but it, it just uh, takes it to the next level, and that's good. Well, I suppose the next evolution is to have volumetric three-dimensional barcodes, right? Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Yeah, exactly. It begs that question. 
I've got two quick fun questions. In in the prototype that you created in the lab, did you happen to add a little speaker so it would beep when it received a, a scan? I don't know. I can't remember. If it did, you know, I mean, we did send a signal back, so I don't know that it beeped, but we did uh, have a printer attached and we did have a display attached. So you could tell whether you scanned it or not by looking at the display. Now, I hate to say it, but the, 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 the first display was uh, a Tektronics, uh, what did we what did we call those damn things that we used that <laughs> you know like an oscilloscope yeah right <laughs> that, that's what it was I can't, I can't remember. I'm, even I'm so old now I can't remember about oscilloscopes so I used to live with them but yeah that, that's what we had at first uh, but then we uh, got advanced and put a little uh, digital display device up. Okay, and uh, I think I know the answer to this, but uh, were, did you ever try to get to the point where you could read barcodes just looking at them? Never. I could care less. <laughs> you made the machine to do it for you, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, okay, so uh, your book, The Barcode, How a Team Created One of the World's Most Ubiquitous Technologies, it's available now. Yes, you can get it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, and uh, the, I guess there are several other bookstores. And uh, Silicon Valley Press is uh, the name of my uh, publisher. You can get it from them too. So yeah, if anyone uh, listening wants to hear more of the stories, go and uh, pick up a copy of that book. Yeah, and interesting, you said you had a technical audience. So the appendix in the book is the actual document that I referred to before. It's a copy of what I wrote in, uh, you know, 53 years ago. And it describes in detail the benefits of uh, magnetically and uh, optically of the code that we had come up with, uh, three different versions of the code and uh, how it compares with other codes. So if anybody wants to read that, there's a lot of graphs, there's a lot of equations and there's a discussion. It's a 40 page appendix. And uh, so anybody wants to uh, see the analysis and it's as it would have been done then, not now. You know, I mean, this 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 was written 53 years ago, and and, and you don't have to read that. If you, I mean, if, if, if the book is written for the general public, so the appendix is just for the engineers. Again, thanks so much, Paul, for joining us on our podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. For those interested in learning more about Paul and his book, please see the links on our show notes. And thank you for listening to Circuit Break. We're your hosts, Parker Nolman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at AnalogENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Circuit Break community discourse hub at circuit-break.macfab.com. Oh,